This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's certainly good to see everyone this morning. Does anyone need a copy of the study today? Raise your hand. All right. There'll be extra copies of this if you need others. Also, the uh, part one from a couple of weeks ago was out on the desk in the lobby, and you can, can get copies of that if you'd like to have the first part of this study because it is a two-part. Then certainly get you one of those out front, and, and uh, we'll be glad for you to have it. By way of review, let me just talk a little bit about part one, and I don't have this scripture on the new set of notes for you today, so let me quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 4. Paul told the Corinthians, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul reminds us of the Gospel. He tells the Corinthians, I preached this to you, and when I did, I preached, number one, that Christ died for our sins, number two, that He was buried, number three, that He rose the third day. The word gospel means good news. And normally when a person dies, that's not good news. But Paul declared that the death of Jesus was good news for you and me. And that he declared that good news. The fact that he was buried was good news. The fact that he rose the third day is good news. And so we talked about the first part of this gospel last time in our study. And that's the death of Christ. The death. Jesus wanted this gospel preached into the world, to every person. Still does. In Mark 16, verse 15 and 16, when he gave the Great Commission, he told the twelve, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned or condemned. He wanted this gospel preached to every person, and he said, You tell them of my death, burial, and resurrection. You give them this good news. The one that will believe you and be baptized, I'll save him. And the one that will not believe will be condemned. So salvation is dependent upon the gospel. It's therefore very important for you and I to understand what the gospel is. We need to know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what it's all about and why. Why these things happened and did they happen, we need evidence and proof of that. And God wants us to have that. So He has piled within the Scriptures evidence mountain high that will convince us. And we've looked at some of those those things from our last study, the first one. If you want to notice the front, the chart that you have now, and I'll talk about this new set of notes that you have because it is different from the other. Even though the front page is the same, the rest of it isn't. Notice there on the first one that Christ died for our sins over in the left column. That's what we talked about last time. I raised the question, why? Why did He die for our sins? And the answer is, God's justice demanded it. You and I have sinned against God. Everyone has. And God has decreed that the penalty for our sins be death. And that death is an eternal separation in what we call hell, the lake of fire. That's the only way we can pay the debt for what we've done. That's all we can do. We don't have a sacrifice, you see, that can appease God's anger. We don't have a sacrifice or anything we can give God that will enable Him to forget our sins and to forgive them and not hold them against us. We don't have that. We don't have the equivalent. God has decreed the penalty is death. And so He cannot change on that. That's justice. And He just demands that sin be punished. That's God's economy. That's how God deals with sin. God doesn't write warning tickets. It is not justice if God overlooks our sins and just lets them go. He cannot do that and be righteous. He cannot. 
And God will be righteous in everything that He does. So we've got to have something that's going to pay this debt for us or we're going to have to pay it. And that payment we'll never get through paying. We'll be suffering in an eternal lake of fire. And you and I can't afford to pay that debt. The good news is Christ died for our sins. He paid the debt. And we talked about why He was able to do that. That He is both God and man. That it was predicted a virgin would come in the future. Isaiah predicted it over 700 years before Jesus came. This woman would be a virgin. There would be no man that would have her. And that she would give, give birth to a son and his name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And we saw that it, through the Holy Spirit, God brought about this miraculous birth. He brought about in the wound of Mary her pregnancy. A body was prepared. And Jesus, who is known as the Word, the one who's been with God and is God for all eternity, left His abode in heaven and came down to earth and inhabited that little newborn baby there at Bethlehem and came into the world and was born like you and I. God had this plan before the foundation of the world. He knew what man would do. He knew that we would sin and prepared for us in advance a sacrifice to take care of our problem because He knew we couldn't afford to pay it and He, he cannot do anything but punish us unless this plan is, is of course accepted by us and obeyed. And so Jesus then was born at Bethlehem, the Son of God. He's God's Son because He had no earthly father. God is His Father. God fathered the child through the Holy Spirit and brought about that miraculous birth. And although Joseph and Mary married, they never had sexual intercourse until after the birth of Christ. She remained a virgin until giving birth. It was a miraculous birth. And now a Savior is born into the world. But that's not all that's required because if Jesus is going to save us, He's got to be sinless. He's got to be perfect. He's got to be innocent. I took you back in, in the Old Testament to the Scripture that deals with the Day of Atonement. Because one day a year, let's remember, Israel had a Day of Atonement for sin. The high priest would offer a bullock back in the Holy of Holies back there. And I gave you a, a picture in these notes of the tabernacle. And we looked at the old tabernacle set up in the wilderness. We talked about what the high priest did and how he went behind this curtain into this very, very last room back here where the Ark of the Covenant was, that he went with the blood of bulls and he sprinkled it on that, on that mercy seat which was the covering of the Ark for his sins and for the sins of his family. And he took care of cleansing himself. He also purified and sanctified the tabernacle itself. All of the furniture had blood applied to it. Even out in the courtyard, the altar burnt offering on every horn at every four corners. Blood was placed there to sanctify that altar. But the problem was this blood of bulls just couldn't take sin away. We talked about the two goats that were brought that day up to the door of the tabernacle. One of them a scapegoat. And remember the high priest would lay his hands over on that goat symbolically transferring his sins and the sins of the people and it would be led off into a wilderness by itself and turned loose, symbolizing the removal of sin and forgotten forever out of God's sight. The other goat had his throat cut, his blood was collected, and the high priest took that blood in here to the mercy seat again and sprinkled it on there. The life of this, these innocent animals was forfeited. God teaching us that blood has to be shed, that life has to be given, to pay the penalty for sin because the wages of sin is death. The blood is the life of our flesh and we talked about the importance of blood. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9.22 without shedding of blood is no remission. God will not remit sin without bloodshed. He won't. Because life has got to be given to pay the penalty for sin. He's teaching us that through these old animal sacrifices. The problem with the animals is they couldn't take sin away. So every year on that certain day, it was the seventh month and the tenth day of the month, the Day of Atonement, 
blood was brought back into this very spot, and all of this ritual was re repeated again by the high priest. That continued up to the coming of Christ, of course, who was to become the perfect sacrifice. Jesus had to live a sinless life. We showed that He did. That He had no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Not only was Jesus innocent and therefore could, could, could have our sins laid on Him, like the high priest transferred sin to the goats and to that bullock and such things, our sin that day at Calvary was transferred over to Christ and He became the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. This was God's plan. His blood would pay the debt because this is what we had to have in order for God to forgive us. And that's why Jesus came to earth. So we talked about all of this and why blood is so essential. Jesus not just being innocent, but folks, remember the reason Jesus can pay the debt for our sins and animals can't, their life is not as valuable as ours. You cannot create enough goats, you cannot create enough bulls to take care of the value of one human life. You never could have enough animals to equal the value of one human. Their life is not as valuable as ours. No number of them is, infinite number. And when it comes to our lives as measured to Christ, our lives cannot equal the value of Jesus. You see, that's why His blood can make an atonement. His life is more valuable than ours. You can't make enough human beings to equal the life value of Jesus. And the reason is He's God. And our lives will never be equal to His. Therefore, when He shed His blood that day at the cross, His life, His blood is sufficient enough to pay our debt. It's enough to buy redemption, to buy our souls. It's enough to pay for what we owe for sinning. And because it is then, God can forgive sins. He can consider debt paid. Our sin placed on Christ, Him dying, bloodshed, debt paid. And so when we meet the conditions upon which He forgives then, God is just. He is righteous in forgiving us because He's not letting sin go. It's been paid for. Paid for by the only one in this universe that can pay for it, and that's Christ. Christ died for our sins. Now we see why this death is so important. Why God wants us to believe this. Why we need Jesus Christ. It's no wonder Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you understand why you can't get to the Father without Christ? Somebody's got to pay for your sins. And if Jesus doesn't pay that debt, there's no one else to do it. And of course, you'll have to go to the lake of fire then and pay for them yourself. You'll never get to heaven because you'll be suffering in that fire for eternity, trying to pay that debt. And it'll never be paid. So this is the dilemma that God was in because of our sin and what He had to do to make an atonement for us. That's good news, isn't it? That's the best news this earth's ever had. Christ died for our sins. That's what we talked about in part one of the study. It's on podcast. If you'd like to go review that, well, you can get the whole sermon on podcast and we'll give you the links. And, of course, you can download that and listen to it and get part one if you missed it or if you just want to go through it again, that's fine. Now, part two this morning, if you'll look at the notes that I gave you, you'll see the same outline there except since we've covered the death of Christ, <clears throat> now we'll deal with His burial and with His resurrection in this part two. And so inside, then, the first couple of pages... You'll notice there are Scripture. That's the Scripture we'll look at today in the study. And then you'll see some other material, the details of Christ's death and burial. I want to talk to us about His death, but especially about His burial and how the Jews buried their dead. We want to talk then about His resurrection. So I have some material in here that gives false theories because ever since the Lord rose from the dead, 
men have been trying to explain away the resurrection. Agnostics and atheists, infidels and others just seek to destroy the good news of the resurrection of Christ. So we'll talk about the false theories, some of them at least, that are spawned. What's wrong with those theories? And I'll give you quite a bit of information inside that you can take with you. Because it's important that not only do we believe that Christ died for our sins, but that He was buried and that He rose again the third day. So we'll look at that this morning. All right? Now when we think about the Lord's burial, of course He was dead, but the burial certainly proves that He was. And it proves it in so many, many ways. But first of all, let's read the gospel record of the Lord's death and then of His burial. So on the page inside now, turn with me to... I think I turned too far. Turn with me to John chapter 19, verse 30 to 37. And it's the second scripture in the list here on this page because... I covered Romans 3 last, the last scripture in that first part. John chapter 19, John writes of the Lord's death. He said, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. So what there is, there's a high Sabbath coming the next day. The Jews don't want these three, these three bodies hanging up on that holy day. It's a, it's a real high holy day. And so they want those bodies off the cross. And they come to Pilate. Because that day, we're told right here in John 19, was a high day. And they besought Pilate, it says, that his legs, Christ's legs, might be broken and that he might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, John's talking about himself, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true that you might believe. For these things were done that the Scriptures should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. That had been predicted in the Old Testament. The Bible says he keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. That was prophesied. That had to be literally fulfilled. And so they never broke Christ's legs on that account. They didn't know they were fulfilling Scripture, but they were. And so his, his legs were not broken, but one of the soldiers, you see, with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water, John said. He that saw it by record, his record is true. He knoweth that he saith true, that you may believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another Scripture. They shall look on him whom they pierced. There's another prophecy. They would look upon the one they pierced. His death by crucifixion was predicted by David at a time in world history when crucifixion was not even practiced. Crucifixion was not practiced a thousand years before Christ came. Yet David writes of it and tells us the manner in which the Messiah will be put to death. That he will die by crucifixion. He will be pierced. His legs, his feet, his hands would be pierced. And he says and predicted they would look on him whom they pierced. All right? So there's the death of Christ. Now, it was a very violent death. Don't think these soldiers were fooled. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, I want you to notice that statement. John says that Christ was dead, and that's important because ever since his resurrection, his enemies have tried to say that he didn't really die. That Jesus went off into a swoon of some kind and later resuscitated. Somehow worked himself out of the tomb. And then the lie was told that he rose from the dead. You see, that's the, that's the spin on this. God put the record so clear in the gospel for us. 
to show us Christ died. These soldiers satisfied themselves that they didn't need to break his legs like the other two thieves. Instead, one of them, in order to be sure, took a spear and pierced his side. Now that fulfilled Scripture too. And John said, forthwith came there out blood and water. They got up into the heart cavity of Christ. There's no way if he were alive he could have survived. Because you see, fluid builds up. And there was a pocket of water in there. And so when blood flowed from that wounded side that day, water flowed with it. John said, He that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith truth. There's not any question that Jesus was dead. And it was a very violent death. And these soldiers knew that he was. But more than that, think about those that buried him. Don't you think his body was getting cold? If he were yet alive, would, he, would his flesh not still be warm as they wrapped him and prepared him for burial? Would not Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who prepared him for burial, have known that the Lord was alive? And you know, they wrapped his body up like a mummy with linen strips and wound him in them, putting, putting aloes and, and uh, spices and such things within the folds there to keep down odor. That's how the Jews buried. So let's look now at, at John 19, verse 38 to 32, very carefully what the Bible says about the burial of Christ. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus therefore, <clears throat> because of the Jews' preparation, and because the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Alright, so what they did was take the body of Christ down from the cross, and inside the tomb they wound that in these linen strips like a mummy, putting the spices and aloes within the folds of this, and they were sticky, and it would kind of hold the wrappings together, and they wound him and uh, placed him there in that tomb. They would have laid a napkin over his head and covered his face. That was the custom also. And these tombs were huge, and, and we'll talk about those, because there were multiple burials usually in those tombs. They, had, they would cut rock ledges along the walls, flat, to lay things on, lay the bodies on. And there might be a whole family buried within that one tomb. Imagine when you bury uh, the next person, you've got to walk in there and look at the wrapped body of your loved one. And then on the third one, you've got to do the same. Now there's two bodies already in there. And so on. But there were just multiple burials in a lot of those tombs. This tomb was one that never, John said, never man had been buried in. And so Jesus was buried there. It belonged to a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Christ, it was predicted, would make his death with the rich. He would be with the rich in his death, referring to the fact that he'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. That had all been predicted too. You see, these were things Jesus had no control over. This coming Wednesday, I'll start a, a continuation of a series we have going where we're, we're talking about how Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and offering evidence. And we're just about to open up Ben and I prophecies about it. And that'll be one of the prophecies that we cover. We're going to go back into the Old Testament and cover a lot of these prophecies. How Jesus is the only person in history that could possibly fulfill the writings of the prophets. Because you see, if He's not the Messiah, somebody's got to come along in our day and age, and He's got to fulfill all of these prophecies that are in the Old Testament. 
He's going to have to die by crucifixion, folks. Not a bone of him can be broken. He's going to have to be buried in a rich man's tomb. He'll have to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. There's just so many things. He'll have to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You see, there's nobody can fulfill this today. This is, this is the sad thing about the Jews in the Middle East rejecting Jesus as the Christ. Because somebody's going to have to come along to fulfill all these things. These prophets did not lie. God did not lie when He gave them that message. So those are things we'll be covering now in probably the next couple of Wednesdays at least. And so if you want to join us for that on Wednesday, well, feel free to. I don't have time today. <clears throat> Nonetheless, this manner of burial did fulfill prophecy, and you can see there that he was buried by Joseph and by Nicodemus. Now Jesus had predicted all of this. If you'll read with me from Matthew chapter 20 now, verse 18 and 19, Christ said this, and He told this to His apostles, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priest and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn Him to death, and deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day He shall rise again. So Jesus said, look, we're going up to Jerusalem right now. <clears throat> Here's what's going to happen, men. I'm going to be, be betrayed, and he was speaking about Judas Iscariot. I'm going to be betrayed under the scribes and the chief priests that are there. And they're going to put me through a trial, a mock trial here, and they're going to condemn me to death. But they're not going to kill me because the Romans have the death penalty. They will deliver me to the Gentiles and they will mock me. Then they're going to scourge me with whips. Then, fellas, I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to rise again the third day. He made all those predictions. His enemies knew about this. I'm glad they did, aren't you? Because they made all kinds of precautions. Read with me now from Matthew chapter 27. And verse 62 to 66. <clears throat> now the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive. Now notice those words. They knew Jesus was dead. This deceiver said this while he was yet alive. They're implying that he was dead. See that? Just read when you study, subtle, read the subtle language that the Holy Spirit's given us in Scripture. Because words have meanings, and these words were chosen by God Himself. This is not worded haphazardly, just in any way. Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure unto the third day lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So shall the last error be worse than the first. Pilate saith unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now the Jews did this. And of course, Guards were placed at that tomb. But they would, have, they would have likely removed that stone away that Joseph and Nicodemus had rolled over the entrance. And they would have examined inside to make sure the body was there. That indeed they had Jesus dead. And that He was buried there. Because why seal this tomb if there's no body, if it's already missing? You know good and well they assured themselves of that fact that we've got a body in here, it's Jesus of Nazareth, and He's dead. And then we're told that they made the sepulcher sure, they, they sealed that stone. I'll talk to you about that in just a minute. And they set a watch, and we'll talk about the watch also. So all of these precautions were taken, you see, by the enemies of Christ. They knew the prediction in Matthew 20. They knew He had said He would rise the third day. And they did, want, they did not want the appearance of that in any fashion 
They did everything they could to avoid it. Now, if you'll turn on about three or four pages over, you'll see details there of the death and burial of Christ. And I want to look at these with you. Let's talk just briefly now, once more, about the death of Jesus because Christ suffered a very cruel, a very violent death. Even His trial had violence. They slapped Him. They spit on Him. Remember, they, they crowned Him with thorns and they hit Him on the head and said, Prophesy, who was it that smote you? And they ridiculed Him. He was crowned with thorns, as we said, smitten. He was forced to carry a heavy cross after He'd been scourged. A Roman scourging was brutal. Jesus had been through a heavy scourging with whips. These weren't just ordinary whips. They were whips that had leather strands out on the ends of them. And knotted into those strands were pieces of metal. Sometimes, sometimes stones or bones or any kind of sharp objects that were embedded in these things. And of course, when they came and struck the, the flesh of the victim, they tore the flesh. That's what they were designed to do. They just shredded your flesh. They would have stripped the Lord naked, laid him over, and stretched the skin tied on his back, tied him up to that whipping post, and then those soldiers would have whipped him just as long as they wanted. The Jews had a limit of 39, really 40 stripes. They would try to stop at 39 in their count just to be sure they didn't go over. But the Romans didn't have a limit. When they, when they came around with those whips, they many times couldn't control where they landed. All of those strands could not be controlled. So they would have torn his buttocks, the back of his legs, his back, shoulders. And a lot of times these strands came around and grabbed the person's abdomen and tore it open. And many times their intestines would just hang out. They would literally beat them that bad and sometimes a victim died under the brutality of that meeting. They beat Jesus terribly and just tore his flesh up. Then they forced him to carry a huge cross beam on his shoulders. Not the entire cross, but the beam. That's got to be carried out to this hill called Calvary. And the Lord wasn't able to do that. He'd spent a sleepless night at that trial. He was weak. And they compelled a man named Joseph uh, coming out of Cyprus to bear his cross on out to the, to the hill of Calvary. He bore it for Christ. He didn't do it willingly. They compelled him to carry it. And Jesus was led out there. And when he was, of course, he was laid on that cross beam and nails were driven through his hands. And he was raised, and that was attached to the pole that had already been prepared there. And of course, his, neat were, his feet were impaled to that as well. And then they suspended him between heaven and earth to suffer and die, and he, he hung there for hours in the air. Now, if you want to feel maybe some agony, just try this sometime. Grab you a door facing that's got a, or, or a bar, or whatever you've got. Hold your hands over your head and just hang by it. Just hang there. Just grab it and hang. All your weight. See if after a while your muscles don't just, and it won't take very long. It's just going to, pain's just going to build up in every muscle that you've got. Because the weight of your body's hanging to that. Jesus' body weight was hanging by nails. We, we can't even imagine the pain of that. Of being suspended like that. Our sin laid on him. God pouring his wrath out on him that day. For the simple reason we've got to have a sacrifice to take care of sin. And animal blood won't do it. It's going to take the blood of one individual in the universe. That's the son of God because that life's more valuable than ours and it'll pay the debt. And so the son of God suffers. Horrible death. Number two, the tomb in which he was buried after he died. The Bible says it was a new tomb. Read with me there. Hewn out, hewn out a solid rock. A tomb in which no one had been ever buried. Historians tell us Jewish tombs usually had an entrance four and a half to five feet high. 
That's a pretty good size opening, isn't it? Most tombs had a forecourt. That is, they had this kind of a little short hallway that led down into the tomb itself, which opened up, you see, larger. But you just picture this as a passage, if you will, kind of like we see on igloos. Now they have an entrance like that. And it had that forecourt that led into the burial chamber itself. The center of the burial chamber, there was a pit, and that allowed a person because the ceilings weren't very high, but if it were dug down there, you could stand up out there in the middle, see. And so they would dig it out sometimes for a person to stand. There were several couches, which were ledges of rock upon which bodies of family or loved one would be laid. The sepulchers then had a groove or a trough cut in the rock in front of them. And this was the track which held the stone there that covered the entrance. So it was designed so the lowest part of it was right in front of the opening. And when you rolled the stone down there, it settled down into the lowest part and sealed off the opening. Kind of, kind of picture a, an opening like this. You've got a slot or a groove cut down here in the rock. And then there's this stone over here. It's bigger than the entrance sitting in it. And it rolls down this groove and it rests because this is the lowest part. It'll just come to rest right there in front of the opening and cover it up, see. And this is, this is the kind of setup that that tomb would likely have had. The custom of the Jews now in burying their dead, the body was placed on a stone table inside the tomb. They washed it with warm water. It was dressed in these grave clothes that were made of, of white linen. Wrapped, uh, wrapped with linen strips like a mummy. The spices were laid in the folds of the linens. Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds of spices. I don't know if they used it all, but uh, it with the linen wrapping, you can imagine probably 105, 110 pounds of just wrappings that could be put around that body, you see. And so this was how they would have prepared that body. Number four, the great stone. And Matthew says that it was a great stone, Matthew 27, 60. A few years ago, some engineers from Georgia Tech went over to the Holy Land and they looked at tombs about the size of, of this four and a half to five feet diameter entrance. And they figured and calculated it would take a stone here that weighed three to four thousand pounds. to cover an entrance like this, to be, in other words, that large, it would weigh this amount. This was a, a great stone, the Bible says. And so that's, that's, that's good size, isn't it? If you wonder, well, how did they move that? <clears throat> well, number one, initially, here's the opening and here's the, the stone. Remember, it's larger. It's sitting in this groove, this trench. And they probably held it in place with a wedge, just a block in here. And you remove that wedge, gravity really took care of the situation, at least on the closing of it, because when you took the wedge out of the way, it would just roll down that slot and come to rest here at the low part and seal up the tomb this way. Now getting it, getting it back the other direction took some manpower, but it could be done. If you'll remember in John 11, when they went out to... to uh, uh, Lazarus tomb there at Bethany, Jesus said remove the stone. And so they had enough manpower to roll the stone back. You could do it if you had sufficient manpower. And remember they rolled that stone back there in John 11 on Lazarus tomb sufficient enough that Jesus said Lazarus come forth and he walked out of that tomb. So these stones could be moved back and forth. It just took the manpower to do it. So then the ceiling of the stone, this may be a little bit different than what you've thought. If you were thinking about seal, like we caulk around windows, that's not what it's dealing with here. When they sealed a stone like this, they took some clay and a string or a cord, and they put this, this, this uh, clay over that string or that cord, put it over the tube, and... Uh, the cord was held in place by this, it was sealed, you see, but not just sealed with that. The governor's ring was, was pressed into that clay and it left an imprint, see, 
strings underneath. So if you try to tear this cord out of here and get in, you're going to break up this stamp. Just picture a big notary seal and uh, everything. See, that, that cord's underneath it. It's going, to, it's going to pull that seal all to pieces. It's going to break the seal. And it's obvious that somebody would have entered and they couldn't duplicate that seal because it took the signet from the gov governor there, you see, his signet to be pressed into that and thieves wouldn't have that. So that should be the first degree of evidence one would find that, that a grave robbery has occurred because that clay is going to be torn up and the seal destroyed, see. So it was a way they sealed it, all right. Then they set a guard, positioned the guard there. We read about that where the Jews requested a guard, soldiers. Usually 16 soldiers. Four quartarians, four quartarians, 16. And four of them would have been on duty at all moments, guarding the tomb. That leaves 12 others. They might be lying around here, scattered about. They might be gambling. They might just be talking. Uh, some of them sleeping. Because every three hours they changed, and four more fresh soldiers were put in place. And the four that had been on duty then could go rest for another long period. Another, what, nine, nine to twelve hours nearly. And so every three hours, these soldiers, or every four hours, they were used. It was called different watches of the night, you see. And so at every watch, the soldiers were changed. Always awake, always refreshed, always had a lot of sleep. Had assistance from others they could call on in a moment's notice. 16 of them, well armed, and they guarded that tomb where the body of Jesus lay. So it was, it was heavily guarded, and, and I'm, I'm glad the enemies did this, see, they requested this. Now, go back to your scripture page, the second page in, to John 20, verse 1 to 10. First day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and saith unto them, They've taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they've laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. So now you know John could outrun Peter, <laughs> faster foot, for all that matters. He stooping down and looking in, this is John, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. Now why are they seeing the linen clothes? Because it's the cocoon, it's the wrappings. You see, it's believed that Jesus' body passed out of this. That when He rose from the dead, He just left these wrappings there intact, kind of like a, we see a, a, a caterpillar. We'll see a, you know, we'll see a hatch, hatch here and the, the shell will be left. In other words, these wrappings are not strewn everywhere. They're just intact, basically. Notice now they see the, the wrappings here, it says. And uh, then verse 7, And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself, very neatly folded up, is the head covering over here. And it's just laid over here by itself to the side. As if the person that came forth that day is in no hurry. If thieves stole this body, why would they wrap the head covering? See, why would they go to trouble like that? How did they get the body out of these wrappings and leave them wound? How'd they do that? Well, they didn't because there wasn't any thief that was in there. See, and this is what John and Peter saw that day. That's why they believed. See. Seven, the napkin which was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, 
but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then when also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. That's John. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. Yes, they'd heard Jesus predict it, but they didn't know it. They didn't understand it. They didn't believe it when he told them that in Matthew 20. <clears throat> and now they see it. Now that's the gospel record. Here's Paul's record in 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Now notice, that He was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve, after that He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater parts of, uh, remain unto this present. Let me stop there. 500, over 500 saw him at once, John, uh, Paul said. And he said the greater part of these still remain. Some, he said, have fallen asleep. So there may have been three to 400 still alive that had seen him after his resurrection. See, at once. At once. And Paul said the greater part of them remains. Now Jesus died, folks, in about 30 A.D. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in 57 A.D. He was at Ephesus and wrote over to Corinth. 27 years later, most of the 500 that saw him at once were still alive, Paul said. Okay? <clears throat> then he goes on, verse 8 <clears throat> or 7, after that he was seen to James and of all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus, remember, near the city. And had other visions of him as well, see. So he was seen by many, many people after his resurrection. Seen alive by hundreds. There's just a lot of evidence in here, see it? God put all this in here for us. Eyewitness testimony from the Gospels and from the Epistles. And so everything's here sufficient to convince anyone that wants to be convinced that really honestly looks at evidence. And you know, if you think of yourself on a jury weighing evidence, it's hard not to believe this, isn't it? The evidence is just overwhelming. The prophets had predicted it, and now Jesus is risen, see. Paul said that's good news. But now if you'll look at the following pages, and I don't know how much time I'll have to do this, so I may not do a whole lot. There are several theories advanced to try to explain away this resurrection. Down below 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8, near the bottom, you'll see the swoon theory. It's been suggested Christ never died, that uh, He went off into a swoon, and later He resuscitated, you see, and worked Himself out of the tomb. But you see, Joseph of Arimathea came asking for His body very soon after the crucifixion, and so that, that got Pilate curious. He satisfied him, Jesus, himself that Jesus was dead. He sent soldiers out. What did they do? They broke the legs of the two thieves, one on each side of Christ, to assure that they were dead because breaking the legs of a victim speeded up their death. You see, then all of the weight of the body was on the arms, and when it sagged, their, their chest cavity would fill up with fluid. They would die of congestive heart failure if they weren't dead very quickly. Smother. They would smother. Because a victim used his feet to push up to breathe. And when his legs are broken, he can't push up. He just sags and fills up with fluid. And of course, Jesus, of course, had water and blood even come out of his wounds. Think about the two thieves. <clears throat> now, uh, 
they thrust that spear into his side. They didn't break his legs, but the soldiers knew he was dead. They knew it. But hey, let's be sure. And they didn't do this to the two thieves that we know of, but with Christ, they ran a spear up into his chest cavity. John said blood and water came out. And John saw it. He that saw it, he said, bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that you may believe. John saw that and wrote about it. He saw blood and water flow from that wounded side that day. And Christ was dead, see. And this idea, this swoon theory, was, is just ridiculous. In fact, if Jesus didn't die, think about this. How did he get out of the tomb? I mean, here's a man with, uh, he's got both hands and feet pierced. He's got a spear hole in his side. We got a stone weighs three or four thousand pounds. We're supposed to believe that from the inside he used the palms of his hands because there wasn't nothing to grip onto on the inside. There's no edge of the rock, see? That he that he somehow worked that three or four thousand pound stone out of there, a man in his condition, having lost blood, and now been in that tomb for three days, if that's if it was the first day of the week. You know, that's just hard to believe. In Mark 16 there, you'll notice on the next page, verse 1 to 3, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? Three able-bodied women coming early that morning are concerned about how they're going to get that huge stone away from the entrance. And we're supposed to believe that Jesus, one person, inside, wounded, weak, blood loss, managed the stamina to break out of that place. This theory is just ridiculous. And you go ahead and read the whole detail of this. He'd have to get by the soldiers next. How would he do that without awaking these other soldiers out here, there's 16 of them out there. And he's a wounded man. Would they not take him, arrest him? And if they all fell asleep, how come they all fell asleep at once? <laughs> you know, every one of them. See, these, these theories are just ridiculous. The next theory is that uh, the disciples came and stole the body. That's the oldest theory. And uh, you find it here in Matthew 28, look at 11 to 15 here with me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. When they, uh, when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large sum of money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. This is the best explanation the enemies of Christ could come up with to explain the missing body. That his disciples came and got it. And of course it's an absurd theory. Look at the last page here. It's absurd for many reasons. Number one, the soldiers would not, or the disciples wouldn't have stole that body if they could have. Luke 24, 11, even the women that saw that he was risen, that the tomb was empty, Luke 24, 11, when they told the twelve, the Bible says, their words seemed unto them as idle tales, and they believed them not. They wouldn't even believe eyewitnesses. These, these disciples wouldn't. Secondly, they couldn't remove the body. There were soldiers stationed there, 16 of them. And I know the guard was bribed to say, well, while we slept, the, the enemies, the disciples came and stole the body. But ask yourself for a minute, how do men that are asleep know who took anything? What if I went over to, what if, what if Ben brought me to court and he said, you know, Pat came over the other night and robbed me and Lana while we were sleeping. I think they might want to know how Ben knew it was me if he was asleep. You know, I think I'd be... One of the things that would be asked at that trial. And I think me and my attorney would have a great, great heyday with that one. 
You see, people that are asleep just don't make good eyewitnesses, do they? And these men are... Furthermore, look at the head napkin. I showed you it was laying by itself in a place. Why would a thief, why would the disciples take time to fold the napkin? Why would they do something that silly? And how did they get it out of this uh, mummy and leave the wrappings? There were, no, there, there were not linen strode everywhere in there. There was no mess. How'd they do that and take the body? And of course, the truth is they didn't. And then how do you explain then, if they stole it, how do you account for the apostles' actions after the resurrection? Because you see, they went out preaching till their dying day that Jesus rose from the dead. They suffered the loss, friends, of everything they had. Their houses, their personal wealth and goods, their fishing business that Peter and John and others were in, they just walked away from the nets and the ship. They gave their lives. They were beaten. They were scourged. Look at Paul's suffering as he was stoned at Lystra. Paul said he saw Jesus. It changed him. He never was the same man. He preached the faith he once destroyed. If tradition's right, they cut Paul's head off in 68 A.D. in Rome. Nero had it done before he died that year. They all gave their lives, except for maybe John, testifying to the fact that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead and they stole the body, try to explain that kind of behavior to me. Why would you give up your life and everything you've got? for a hoax that you didn't see and you're going around the world preaching it that it did happen. I mean, that makes no sense. And then it's said that, well, the enemy stole the body. Now there's a good one. <clears throat> Why would the enemies want this body? They didn't want anything to occur that looked like a resurrection. And so what, what would they do with the body? And let's suppose the enemies took the body that day. Fifty days later, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches the resurrection of Christ. Now, if the enemies had the body, wouldn't you think they'd cart it in? Wouldn't you, don't you think they would have exposed the twelve as malicious liars? And they would say to that crowd of thousands of Jews, these men are preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's his body right here. This is a hoax. They'd have loved to have had the body. But they didn't have the body, you see, because the resurrection literally occurred. You know, the Bible record of the resurrection is a lot easier to believe than these false theories. An angel of God came down from heaven, rolled a stone away from the entrance to this tomb, and Jesus walked out alive never to die again. That's the Bible record, and that's a lot easier to believe, and the evidence all points to it. And of course it doesn't point to any of this other. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He rose again the third day. And what that resurrection, that resurrection's important. Because here's why. You see, we not only need a sacrifice for our sins, somebody's got to get us out of the ground. We've got to have a resurrection one day if we're going to live again. And who is that? It's the one that conquered death that day, Jesus. He is the one that will return one day and speak and the graves will open. You see, we're basing our hope of living again upon Jesus. You and I are staking our lifestyle, everything we do, on one person. Isn't that what we're doing? We're saying, I believe so strongly in this Jesus of Nazareth that He can, can be the sacrifice for my sins that I'm going to do what the Bible says to obtain it. I'm going to believe in Him, repent, confess Him, and be baptized. And I'm going to live as He directs because I believe there's everlasting life promised to me that He will grant one day if I live this way. And the Bible says and promises that He's coming back one day to raise us all. We're counting on that because we're going to die. If you don't think you're going to die, drive by a cemetery sometime and look at all the stones out there. And ask yourself, how did these unfortunate people wind up here and I'm, I'm not going to? 
you're fooling yourself. That's exactly where you're going to wind up. So am I. Sooner probably rather than later. A lot sooner than we want. And we're going to have to get out of the ground one day and we're counting on one person to do it. Now, God's done all of this for us. That's the good news, but we've got to make a response. Jesus said you've got to be baptized. And I've got scripture here. We've talked about these many times, so I'm not going for sake of time to read these to you. <clears throat> but I will give you Mark 16, 15, and 16 again. And it's there on the second sheet underneath the cover sheet. <clears throat> Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized, Jesus said, shall be saved. If we'll believe in his death, burial, and resurrection and obeying in baptism, we'll be saved. And what's baptism got to do with it? Baptism is the command appointed of God for us to demonstrate faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Would you look at the pictures on your chart on the front? The top one there on the right is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. So you have the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God's appointed baptism. He's asked us to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. God says, I want to see evidence that you believe. I want you to be baptized. If you believe my son rose or died for sin, would you die with him? Will you be baptized into his death? Will you be crucified with him? Do you believe my son was buried? Will you be buried with him in baptism? Will you demonstrate that belief? You see, faith without works is dead. This is the work appointed of God. It's, it's not perfect law keeping. We can't do that. It's just simply a work appointed of God to demonstrate faith. That's what it is. God's saying, do you believe my son rose the third day? Will you be raised to walk with him in newness of life from that water? And so in baptism, we go through a likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to demonstrate that we believe the gospel, that he died, was buried, and rose, and we go through a likeness of it. And if we're not willing to demonstrate our faith like that, he's not going to forgive you. And we have people today say, you don't have to be baptized. God says you do. God says, I want it demonstrated. Preachers come along and say, no, it's got nothing to do with it. I'm not telling you today baptism earns salvation. I'm telling you it demonstrates faith. And faith is that by which we're saved. But it's not faith only, it's obedient faith. And it must be expressed as God demands. He sets the rules, we don't. He forgives, we don't. And if you want Him to forgive, you've got to meet His conditions. Now He's done all the heavy work. He's the one that watched as His Son died in agony that day. He's the one that gave His only begotten Son because He loved us. He's not asking much of us. He's asking us to believe this with all of our hearts and to demonstrate that belief in a simple act of water baptism. And God says, I will forgive you if you do that. That looks pretty simple to me. You're not going to make it to the Father without Christ. As I close now, I want to leave you with one scripture, and that's in John 6. Jesus was preaching in this chapter and his sayings became hard. Why? He started telling the, the people there, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate manna out here in the wilderness and they died, but I'm the bread that if you'll partake of me, you'll never die. He said, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you don't have any life in you. And the people couldn't understand that. He was speaking spiritually. You've got to partake of me. You've got to have my body and my blood or you'll never have life. And they just couldn't, they couldn't conceive of what he was saying. The Bible says in John 6, look at 66 with me, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Are you apostles going to walk too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that Thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter said, who are we going to go to, Lord, if we leave you? Have you and I thought of that? Who are we going to go to? Who's going to pay our sins, Muhammad? He doesn't have anything to pay them with. He's got sins of his own. Who's going to get our body out of the ground? Nobody. Guys like Muhammad and others, they're dead. They need a resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We're not going to get there without him. Not without his blood, because we'll retain our sins and we'll be condemned and we've got to pay for them. Not without his resurrection, because we are powerless to raise our own body. We are utterly dependent upon one person in this universe, Jesus Christ. In the moment, we're going to eat the bread and drink the fruit of the vine in remembrance of this body and blood. It should have great significance to us today, as it should every day, but especially today. And may that help you prepare your mind today. May your heart swell, may it overflow with gratitude for this Savior, this Son of Jesus, and may it cause you to devote your life to Him till the day you die. Because, friends, without Him, we're doomed. We're doomed. I wish the world could understand this simple message we've heard today. But may it be a treasure to us. Let's have the invitation if somebody needs the Lord today. We'd like to have you come forward and express that, that need. And if you desire baptism, we'll arrange that. If you need prayer, we'll do that. Brother Regan will lead us in an invitation. Would you come? We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.